Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Are you guys ready to get into God's Word? You have your Bibles with you or your, I guess your iPhone or your iPad, whatever it is. Will you open up to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2? We're going to finish out this chapter today. We're, we're going to continue our series, Spiritual Grit. We're going through the book of 1 Peter. We love the Bible here at New Heights Church. We love the Bible. In a world where biblical illiteracy is rampant, we have to learn to love God's Word, Right? Because it's the Word of God that does the work of God by the Spirit of God in the lives of the people of God. It's a full sentence, isn't it? I'll say it one more time because it's what we truly believe. The Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God in the lives of the people of God. And so we love God's Word. And today we are committed to it. Well, every day we're committed to it. But we, we design our Sunday service around God's Word. And today I'm going to go a little shorter or I'm going to attempt. I know some of you don't believe it's possible, but you, you sang it during worship. God does the impossible. So your pastor can preach a shorter message because I want to focus on some response time today, and I want to open up the altars for prayer. But again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to finish out the chapter. Looking at verse 21 again, we talked about it last week. We'll, we'll briefly look at it again, and we're going to go all the way to 25. Peter has been hammering home some very difficult truths to hear. So before we get into it, let's just pray that God would uh, help us to understand his word that we would maybe take every, all kinds of distractions, our own, and just see it through a God's lens. Not our own personal lens, not a cultural lens, but that we would see God's word for what it is. And we could apply it to our lives today, that God would take me out of the picture and he would speak directly to your heart. Uh, pray with me. Father, we take a moment to honor you. We honor you as God. You're the creator of all things, including us. And today we thank you for your presence in our lives, your purpose for our lives. God, we pray that you would speak through your word today, connect directly to our hearts, that you would help us in our present situations, all our situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in today, our relationships, our work situations, our government situations, help us to reflect Jesus in all that we, we do. And I, I pray that people that you have put in our lives would look at us and see Jesus. God, that you would be the motivation behind all that we do and that our lives would make others curious and be willing to investigate into Jesus Christ. And that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys ever play the, the game Follow the Leader when you're little? I love that game. It's a kid's game. It's a wonderful game because it teaches, teaches kids that to be a really good leader, you've got to learn to follow first. 
It's a pretty good game, right? I hated it when I was little because I always wanted to be the leader right away. And, uh, but it's a great game. Players will first choose a leader, head of the line, and then all the remaining players or the followers, they all line up behind the leader, and the leader then moves around, and all the players have to mimic what the leader does. Any players who fail to follow or mimic the leader, they're out of the game. And when only one player remains or one follower remains, that follower then becomes the new leader and the game starts all over again. Loved, loved playing it when I was a little kid, when I was the leader, but struggled with my attention. I think Liam gets that from me. Struggled focusing, and so I was rarely the leader and follow the leader, but... Great game, and we're going to talk about a leader who's worthy of following today. I once read the story of a young woman who wanted to go to college, but her heart sank when she read the question on the application that asked, are you a leader? Well, being an honest person, she wrote no, and she returned the application, expecting that she wouldn't get in the college. But to her surprise, she received a letter from the college, and it, and it read, Dear Applicant, a study of the application form reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it's imperative that they have at least one follower. <laughs> there are times for all of us to lead in various roles and ways in our lives. We're called to be leaders. But sometimes we become so focused on leadership that we forget our first responsibility is to be followers of Jesus Christ. The first command that he gave to his disciples was, follow me. And the same is true for you and me today. There's no way to be a successful, victorious Christian without first walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We need to follow Jesus. He needs to be the leader. In verse 21 in chapter 2, this is what Peter said. He said, for, for to this you have been called. He said, you've been called. Called to what? Well, Peter's just been talking about suffering. I know this isn't a fun topic. He's just been talking about the fact that those who know Jesus and follow Jesus will. They will, not maybe, not might. They will experience suffering. He said, for this you have been called. What he's saying is that it's a part of the salvation package. It just goes with it. God's children have been called to suffering. It's a part of the salvation experience. I am praying that one day the Assemblies of God has 17 fundamental truths and suffering gets on that list. Suffering is a part of the plan of God for your life, and it's a part of how God intends to use you in the world, and it's a part of submitting your life to Jesus. I just used the word submit. We've been talking about submission. It's a word that we've been going over the last two weeks, that you submit during difficult circumstances. And some of you are going, ugh, I hate the word. I, I don't even like hearing the word submission. And yet here it is in the Bible, it's something we're commanded to do. It might make you sick because it's a word that's been abused in past times. An idea that has been used to manipulate people throughout history. And so there have been many who don't like the word, they choose to ignore it. And when they come across it in the Bible, they, they won't even accept it. Well, words have a way of doing that, don't they? I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes they trigger negative feelings. Almost like certain songs can do when you listen to a certain song or certain smells and sights, they can take you back to a place in life. Lately, I've been on a search to find the, the men's cologne, Stetson Sierra. 
Anybody remember that? They don't sell it anymore. They don't make it. You only could find it in like the Walgreens store or, or Walmart or Target. Stetson Sierra it was really cheap cologne that you could buy. And, and it reminds me of my dad because not that he liked cheap cologne, but that's what we bought him every year for Christmas. You know, he went through that stage where you just, whatever the kids could buy. So the $8 cologne... That's what we got for dad every single year. But that smell will bring me back to my dad. And, and I want it so bad that I've Googled it. I can't find it anywhere. I just found it on eBay. And right now it's at like $257. And I'm bidding on it. And Liz is saying, why are you buying cheap, nasty old cologne for that much money? Liz, I can't explain it, but I want it. Because if I can open it and smell it, it's going to bring me back and remind me of my dad. You guys know how sometimes, you know, sights and smells can do that. My dad's jacket, after he passed away, it would hang up in his closet, and I would go and sometimes just smell the jacket because it would bring me back to a place in my life. Well, words do the same thing sometimes. They'll trigger memories. I hate the word brain tumor. I hate it. It's one of those words. What about cancer? be another one of those words. Inoperable. It's not a fun word to hear. There's certain words that just trigger ugly, bad memories. Submission is hard because it goes against the idea of freedom. We don't like that word submission. When we think of freedom, we think that means we don't have to submit to anybody. And yet here Peter's telling us it gives, he's saying something different. He's giving uh, freedom a whole nother definition. He says that because you are free, he said that in verse 16, you should never use that freedom to do something wrong, but instead use your freedom for the right purposes. In other words, because we're free men and women, we reduce certain freedoms in our life that we might pursue other freedoms. The one thing that God wants is a genuine life. He wants believers to live for Jesus Christ, to live exactly what they profess, even if that means suffering. We're supposed to follow Jesus in his suffering. And in this passage, Peter's about to give us one of the most clearest, most descriptive pictures of what suffering looks like in the guy that we're, not the guy, the God that we follow, Jesus Christ. So look with me at verse 21, because Peter's going to talk about the great call. And I know we, we briefly went over verse 21 last week, but look again with me. Starting in verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. You see, Peter, what he's doing here is he's bringing us to the highest point of this text. He's going to give us the example and the motivation for submission. And that's basic, and that's, that better be because we want to be like Jesus. You're going to have a really difficult time accepting biblical truths and principles and applying them to your life if you don't even care to be like Jesus. That's where it starts. you got to want to be like Jesus. But if you want to be like Jesus, the Bible is going to be of the utmost importance and priority in your life. And this whole theme hinges on a verse that we, we told you about last time or the week before, two weeks before, I think, back way back in verse 12, where he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're on a stage and people are watching us. It says, to this you were called, to 
put up with harsh circumstances, to put up with difficult people. To this you were called. He uses the word you here in verse 21. It's a simple word, but it has a profound meaning when it's used with the death of Christ because it means that Jesus died in our place, in our stead, in our room as our substitute. We deserved it. Jesus did it for us. And then he uses another word. So if you've got a pencil or a pen, you're taking notes or a highlighter, you highlight this word example. You see it there. The word means the pattern of some picture or letter that a teacher gives to the pupil. So the pattern is to be copied or reproduced. The word literally means writing under. How many of you remember kindergarten when you were learning to trace words? Hated that because I always was told I couldn't keep the lines. But that's how you learn. Liam's doing it right now. He gets homework sent home every day in kindergarten to trace the letters. He's learning to write the letters. Jesus Christ is the one that we trace the behavior of our life. Jesus. Whether good times, bad times, and that's the reason we'll put up with it, we'll endure harsh circumstances, we'll put up with crazy, annoying people, it's because Jesus did it. We're tracing our life after Jesus. Then you see the word follow. The word is a picture of a guide leading us along a, a very difficult and rocky path. So difficult that we actually put our feet in his footprints. I grew up in Washington State and I loved to hike. And there would be sometimes we would hike in very snowy weather. Once we, we were getting higher and higher up in the mountain, my dad made me take a survival class or some, I don't know if it was a survival class, but a, a safety class for, for hiking. And I remember the, the guide tell, or the teacher telling us there, there could be, and I've never experienced, but it could be times where you're hiking that the weather's so bad you can't see in front of you. So what you need to do is follow the footprints of your guide. So you'll see his footprints and you keep following those footprints. I remember that. Here's what Peter is telling us to do. You follow in the footprints of Jesus. One of my all-time favorite worship songs is I've Decided to Follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. Stephen, I'll sign up for worship team next week. No turning back. No turning back. Love it. Do you know that it, this, it's a Christian hymn that actually originated in India? In the state of Assam. According to uh, Pijab, the lyrics, they're based on the very last words of Noksang, who was a man from a tribe up north and who had converted to Christianity in the middle of the 19th century and through the efforts of an American missionary. But when him and his family were about to be martyred for their faith, he, he quoted... He quoted words from the book of John, the 12th chapter. And from that, they turned some of the things that he said right before he died into this hymn that we know today. The melody of the song is in India. It's Indian. It was titled a psalm in the very beginning after the region where, where this man was from. Today, we know it because an American hymn editor by the name of William Jensen Reynolds composed an arrangement, and it was included in the 1959 Assembly Songbook. And this version became a regular on the feature of Billy Graham's Evangelistic Crusades. A regular. They would sing it every single crusade that Billy Graham would preach. But you know what the lyrics say, don't you? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Here's my question, church. Do you believe it when you sing it? Do you mean it when you sing it? 
Have you decided to follow Jesus? Because if you're gonna follow the steps of Jesus, it means that you gotta be going in the direction that Jesus is going. Jesus is the example. I, I think when Peter made this statement, he probably had all kinds of memories flood, flood him at once. You know, he was a fisherman working with his nets around the ship one day around the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus came walking by and said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. I wonder if Peter went back to that time and that moment when he wrote these words. Maybe he thought about it the night before the Lord was crucified, the night of his trial. The Bible tells us that Peter was following him around from afar. From afar. I've always thought that was interesting. Sometimes we don't follow Jesus as close as we should follow. And I wonder if Peter remembered that night. Maybe he remembered after the resurrection when Jesus gathered with them around the Sea of Galilee and he cooked breakfast and he was hanging out with them and he looked to Peter and he said this, follow me, follow me. Jesus is our master. If Jesus had to suffer, then who are we as his followers to think we don't have to? Peter is saying we are literally following in the footsteps of Jesus. There's an old song. I'm going back to all the goodies but the oldies here, or the oldies but goodies. There's another old song in the hymn book that we used to sing when I was really small. Footsteps of Jesus that make the pathway glow. We will follow the steps of Jesus wherever they go. That should be the desire of every one of us in this building today who have put our faith in Jesus. If you're going to follow the steps of Jesus, that means you're going to be going in the direction that Jesus is going. But I'm going to tell you something. Those footsteps of Jesus led him to Calvary. Led him to the cross. Led him to Roman persecution, to Jewish persecution. Those, he, he went to a place where it cost him his life. The Bible says that those who live godly in Christ Jesus, they'll suffer. And they'll suffer what? Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I know this isn't a fun message, but it's in the Bible. It's important. It's important that we understand it. So Peter's describing the great calling of the believers. That's right, the great call to suffer. Then he moves to the great example. I want you to, again, we'll look at 21, but we're going to go all the way through 24. Look with me. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued in trusting. That's an important word. Highlight it. Himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now, what Peter's doing is he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from chapter, Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah's predicting what Jesus would be like and Peter who's lived with him walked with Jesus, worked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, knew Jesus, is saying, yep, Isaiah, he had it right. Isaiah predicted, predicted Jesus would be like this, and this is what Jesus was like. I know, I just spent all that time with him. He's quoting Isaiah 53, 9. Look at that. It says, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done 
no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He works backwards here. He, he quotes verse 9, and then he quotes verse 7, Isaiah 53, 7, that says this. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus' actions, his words, they were pure. He was the real deal. He didn't fight back. That's the biggest thing to me. Notice when he was reviled, and by the way, that means verbally abused. Did you know that Jesus was verbally abused? He didn't fight back. People would insult him. He didn't fight back. People came up with untrue accusations. He didn't fight back. Man, have you ever thought about that when you're going through a difficult time? And just so you know, if you've never, never learned this before, you've never discovered this, it might be a shock, but people are mean. People are mean. They say mean things. And not just people out in the, in the secular world. People in the church can say mean, hurtful things. People have said things before that have made me cry. An adult, Liz, Liz will, well, she won't tease me, but she'll comfort me. But I, I've cried before by things that people in the church have said. People can say mean things. Don't be one of those people. Don't say mean things. Watch what you say. Your words affect people. You have the power to build somebody up or tear somebody down. Make sure you're building people up. These people went after Jesus. They were nasty. They were gnarly. He never, ever retaliated. They called Jesus a deceiver. They called him a legitimate child. They called him a blasphemer. They called him, they laughed at him when he said he would come and destroy the temple. They made fun of him, ridiculed him. And when all that happened, he never retaliated. He didn't say, you just wait. You just wait till the second coming. I know who you are. I know your address. Jesus never did that. In fact, when he finally, you remember before Pilate too, even Pilate was astonished. Don't you have anything to say? Won't you say anything? Jesus never responded. The first time that Jesus responded was on the cross. And you remember the words that came out of his mouth? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's the master that we've been called to follow. That's the footsteps we've been called to follow. And I'm going to be honest. Can I just be really transparent with you? I don't know sometimes how to do that. Everything inside me wants to defend myself. And I know that's just the human nature. When somebody attacks you, when somebody comes after you, your nature is to fight back and defend yourself, right? That's not just me. That's everybody. That's human nature. And God is telling us to not retaliate. Follow the footsteps of Jesus. I love the story when Peter thought he would impress Jesus with, the idea, with his idea of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 through 22, it says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. I love this story. The more you read the Bible and the more you learn about Peter's character, the more at least I can relate to him. Peter was so human. The Bible doesn't hide that. Peter was approaching God trying to score points here. 
He thought he really was going to impress Jesus. And, and he mentions seven times because that number just seems so crazy. You know, how many times, Jesus, do we need to forgive? Seven? And Peter responds 77 times. I would have loved to see Peter's face. <laughs> Peter thought he was pretty good saying seven times. To forgive is not our nature. It's not. To retaliate is. All you got to do is go down and spend an hour in our nursery and you're going to see what I'm talking about. <laughs> Even the best, most behaved children always retaliate. That's why they started it. The most famous line of children came to be because it came out of retaliation. Can I tell you, if I had just a nickel for every time I heard he started it, she started it, I would be a millionaire today. It's just nature. Dad, Asher started it. Dad, Allie started it. Well, most of the time it's Liam started it, but... <laughs> Man, it's just our nature. We retaliate, you know. Paul tells believers not to take vengeance, but to leave room for the wrath of God. Here's what Peter's saying. God is a God of justice. Do you guys understand what hell is? I know preachers don't preach much about it, but it's in the Bible a whole lot. Hell is an ultimate righting of all wrongs. People's sin will be paid back in one of two places, in hell or on the cross. So I don't have to take that responsibility on myself. That's what Jesus Christ did. He entrusted himself to God. That's what Jesus did on the cross, and that's what we're being called to do. The only way some of you are going to escape the bitterness and the insane urge to get people back is to learn to rest in this fact understand that the God we serve is a God of justice. You don't have to fight this fight. Frederick, uh, I think his last name's Buchner, quoted this. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to savor to the last toothsome morsel. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul quotes a poem from Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, when I read that when I was a little kid, I was praying for every teacher I ever had. <laughs> thought my teacher was my enemy. Misunderstood this when I was a little kid, though. A lot of people do. They read this, and I'm going to pray for this person because I want to heap hot coals over their head. That's more like it. That's what I want to do. That's exactly what I feel like doing to my enemy. Where can I get those hot coals? I'm ready. Better to understand what the Jewish metaphor means. Heaping fiery coals on someone's head will do one of two things to a person. It will either wake them up to the injustice of what they are doing to you. You could kind of use the expression today, splash, splash of cold water. Or it will increase God's judgment on them in the day he brings vengeance. God will say to them on judgment day, after kindness upon kindness that they showed you, this is how you treated them. And God's judgment will be worse on them. Your kindness will literally heap hot coals on them. That's what it means. Your preference should be your kindness to wake them up. That's what the verse is saying. 
But either way, your response to their evil is to bless. To bless. That's what God's calling you to do. In doing this, Paul says you're going to conquer evil. That's what he says in Romans 12, 21. How is he going to do that? Well, for one, you'll stop the spread of evil in yourself. You won't let bitterness grow in you. But in responding with grace, you're going to create this chance of curing it in the offender. That should be your heart. Look, you don't learn to love by trying. Babies aren't given a book about love. They're given a family that gives them love. The same is true of forgiveness. You learn to forgive not by analysis, but by experience. Before forgiveness is something you do, it's someone you meet. Listen to me. Before forgiveness is something you do, it's someone you meet. It's Jesus Christ, your forgiver. Meeting the embodiment of God's mercy towards you will produce it in you towards other people. Look to Jesus if you're suffering today with unforgiveness. Don't let bitterness destroy you. It'll make you miserable. Unforgiveness is like a cancer and it eats away at you. Look again at verse 23. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting, important word, himself to him who judges justly. The word means to hand over, to deliver into the hands of. Some of your translations say committed. You let it go. You turn it over. You commit it. You drop it off and you let it go. You walk away from it. You confidently rest in God's ability to handle the hurt that's been done to you. Let it go. Then if you jump over to chapter 4, Peter kind of explains it again. In 1 Peter 4 verse 19, he argues this thought. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust, there it is, commit their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It could be translated this, he kept on committing himself to God. On a continual basis, every day he trusted God. He committed his life to God. He committed those that have hurt him to God. With every new insult leveled on Jesus, Jesus said, Father, I'm committing that to you. With every abusive word, Lord, I'm going to give that to you. With every slap of the hand, Lord, I'm committing that one to you. With every snap of the whip, Father, I commit it to you. And over and over, repeatedly, until finally on the cross, he said this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he bowed his head and he died. This has to be our mantra. If we don't learn to do this, we will rot in our bitterness. If every time somebody's done something cruel to us and we don't say, God, I'm committing that to you, I'm giving it to you, bitterness is going to set in and it's going to begin to rot away at your peace and your joy and you will be a miserable person. Nelson Mandela once said this, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Or the Chinese proverb that says this, before you bark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Here's what I've discovered in my life. That when I pray for someone long enough that I regard as my enemy, I can't, they can't stay my enemy for long. Keep asking God to bless them. Pretty soon my feelings change towards them. If you've got an enemy, you've got someone in your life that you feel you have so much resentment, I'm going to encourage you to start praying for them. 
You can't pray for him too long without something that happens right here in your heart. The Holy Spirit begins to do something in your heart. The Holy Spirit can take a mad, angry, resentful heart and he can change it. Start, start surrendering yourself to the Spirit. Start praying for that person. It's amazing what God can do. Verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. What an incredible love for you and me. He suffered in our place. He died voluntarily. Jesus is the only one who has ever voluntarily died. And some of you right away are going to say, that's not true. People in history have died for a cause. Some people have died voluntarily for great causes. Well, they might have chosen the moment or maybe the means by which they died, but they did not choose the fact of their death. They already had to die. Jesus is the only person to die who never had to die. But he chose to do it. That's why Peter quotes from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it says, but he was pierced for our whose? Whose? For ours. Whose transgressions? Ours. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Peter says, we're the rebels. We're the ones who resisted authority. We're the servants who rebelled against our rightful master. We're the unjust ones who rejected the rightful rule of God. It was us. Jesus was the Lord who submitted to death, the master who became a servant, the rightful ruler who suffered our injustice by the submitting to our injustice. He redeemed us. So now we should do likewise. Now we take his posture towards others to redeem them. Isn't that amazing? Then again, he quotes Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's the Jesus that we follow. He was willing to die for those that wanted him dead, insulted him, hurt him, brought pain to him. Are you willing to die for your enemy, what you would consider an enemy? Do you have that kind of love in your heart? You can. The Bible says it's possible. This leads to verse 25 where Peter's going to show the great need. He ends on this note, the great need. Verse 25, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, Peter's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah 53, 6 here. Isaiah 53, 6 says, we, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is how he awoke us from our sin. Peter paint, paints a beautiful picture here. This is how God uses us to awaken others. How does God use you to bring back the, the straying ones? By the way you suffer. He's going to round third base and he's coming home right now. You show you have a faith in God's justice that is greater than this world, a joy that is imperishable, that can't be touched by the threats of this world, and a selfless love for others that is beyond the reach of this world. We follow our leader's example. That's why Romans 5.8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was patient with you in the past. 
God has been patient with us, right? Like the father of the prodigal son who saw his son leave and then sow his wild oats, live with pigs, but he finally came home. There's a story I've heard preachers share this as an illustration before about a father and a son in Madrid, Spain. They had this big fight. Words were spoken. uh, Hurt feelings existed. And there was just a lot of anger and it went back and forth. And finally, the, the young teenage son runs away from home. His dad was so heartbroken that he started looking for him all over town, but he couldn't find him called his friends, went to the places that his son hung out but had no luck. He couldn't find him. Finally, he's desperate. He took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper that said this, Dear Paco, meet me tomorrow in front of the newspaper office at 12. All is forgiven. I love you. Come home. Signed, Dad. The next day at 12, noon, in front of the newspaper office in Madrid, Spain, there were 800 young men named Paco all waiting to receive forgiveness from their fathers from whom they were estranged. Everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. I know the world saying, we don't need Jesus We don't need your religion, but there is a hole in every heart that is yearning for truth and is yearning for God, even if they don't realize it. It's there, and the only thing that's going to fill that void, the only thing is Jesus Christ. Everybody's in need. Everybody's in need. And God met that need in your life through patience. Now he's calling you to help him meet the need in other lives through that same patience that he showed you. That's what call, Paul, blah, blah, blah. Peter, Paul, Jesus, it's one of them. That's what God is calling you to do now. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. I hope you see how Peter is drawing the suffering that you experience in your life to meet one of the greatest needs that this world has. I hope you see that. I hope you see that Paul's connecting these dots here. This is how you're going to show the beauty of Jesus Christ. We always want to show the world the power of God by the way he prospers us and heals us, and he does that. God is awesome, isn't he? Isn't that incredible that God can heal cancer? God can deliver people? I watched The Chosen last night. I know I'm behind. The first episode I watched The Chosen last night, and again I was just amazed when he heals Mary Magdalene. What a powerful scene, because that's what our God does. He can do that, and it's big and it's huge, but if God only blessed us with the health and wealth all the time, the world would not be amazed. Everybody rejoices when they're healthy and wealthy, but when you rejoice in cancer or, or even when you've been fired, that's when you show that you've got a hope that goes beyond all what they hope in, a joy that pain cannot take away, and a peace that passes all understanding. When, when was the last time someone was so amazed at how joyful you were in suffering that they asked you about it? That's God's attention in, in what may be in our, in our most crucial moment, in our Christian age, our most powerful witness. So here we are, and the worship team can come on up. I'm going to close. I told you I would do it. 
here we are, called this morning, the year 2022, to put our life over the image of Jesus Christ. To trace in our letters, in our communication, a life for ourselves that models the life of Jesus. That's your call today. And in closing, I want to just say this, that God has been patient with some of you for such a long time. Right? He's waited for you to come to him for such a long time. He'll never force himself on you. That's not God. That's not what he does. Do you know that Jesus never met a disease that he couldn't cure? Never met a demon he couldn't cast out. Never met a dead person he couldn't resurrect. But he met plenty of people he could not convert. So many people saw Jesus and experienced his ministries and still left his presence not believing in him. Because here's the truth, guys. To believe in him, to receive forgiveness, it means you have to receive it. You have to take it. There's a part that you play in this salvation process, it's, and it's just embracing it. It requires an act of your will, and if you haven't done that, he's waiting for you to come home today. He's waiting for you. So will you just bow your heads with me for one moment as we close? Father, the last, the last two weeks, we've talked about some things that are so difficult. We've talked about suffering, and it pains me sometimes to preach this message knowing that there are those in my congregation, some of my very own sheep, that are going through such difficult times. And everything inside of me wants to just make it better for them. Take away the painful circumstance. Take away whatever they're facing. It's not possible on my part. And yet I know that their Heavenly Father loves them and is with them and wants to help them in this situation and and even receive glory from it. We have this amazing Savior that we're supposed to be tracing our life after who who did exactly that. He never sinned with his words. He never sinned with his actions. And he left us the the most amazing example. And he told us to follow in his steps, to look to him as the example. So God, help us. Help us to put up with what we feel is excruciating pain, whether it be in our workplace, whether it be in relationships, whether it be in our family, at home, with our neighbors, in our government. God, help us today. Let go of vengeance. And Lord, help us submit to you. And even even more than that, help us to show love that would literally just shock people, leave them speechless, people who have hurt us, people who have wronged us, Help us be a part of bringing back those to you. And God, I want to take a moment today to pray for those who have never been converted, who have never experienced your love, your grace, your mercy. You've been waiting for them for a long time. Maybe some, maybe some today who have never said yes to Jesus, maybe they're really good people. Maybe they've attended this church their whole life. Maybe they've attended this church or another church for a long time and they would say that they're, they're religious, they're well-meaning, they're well-intentioned. 
There's so much going on in their lives except for peace, except for the rest, except for the assurance that when they die, they will be in your presence. And I pray that today they would come to you and experience rest. So God, as I close out today's service, and you're here today, wherever you're at, if you're, if you're watching on TV, you can't make eye contact with me, but you can still ask Jesus into your heart. But if you're here today and you want to say yes to Jesus, you want to come to him, maybe it's for the very first time in your life, maybe, maybe you're coming back to him after wandering for a long time, I want to pray with you. And all I'm going to ask that you do is make eye contact with me today. All heads are bowed. You're going to look at me. I see. Thank you. Just make contact. I want to know who I'm praying for. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to pray for you right now, those who looked at me. And I want to encourage all of those that just looked up at me and nodded at me. I want to encourage you. I'm going to have our prayer team come up to the altar today. I want to encourage those that just gave their life to Jesus. That when, when our worship team begins to sing again, I, you don't have to, but I want to encourage you to come up. We would love to pray with you, but I'm going to open up the altars for everyone today, not just for those that are, and I'm going to pray the prayer of salvation here in a little bit, but not just for those that are accepting Jesus for the first time, but I want to open up the altars because we live in a difficult world. We're going through difficult times. I've had more people in my office as of recent going through some very difficult times, and I feel we just need to commit time to pray. We need to open the altars and give the Holy Spirit a chance to move. And so I'm going to just open up our altars. If our prayer team is here, I'm going to ask them to come up to the front. We're available to pray with you. If you want to just come and pray on your own, that's okay too. But our altars are open, and I'm going to pray a prayer right now for all those that looked up at me and nodded at me today. I just want to pray for you right now. God, I thank you for all of those today that said, uh, you have waited long enough. I want to come home. I want the peace and I want the rest that comes with being in your presence and being your child. And so, God, all your word says is that we have to acknowledge you. Acknowledge that you are who you say you are. You are Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that we have sinned and there is nothing we can do on our own, but what you did on the, Christ, or on the cross is, more, is sufficient. And so, God, we embrace your forgiveness. We embrace your grace and your mercy. Come into our life now and make us a new creation. Change our heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody says, Amen.